0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies podcast series. I'm your host, Amanda Jean Swain, at the University of California, Irvine. Today, we'll be talking with Valerie Sperling about her recent book, Sex, Politics, and Putin, Political Legitimacy in Russia, published by Oxford University Press. The book's cover features a photograph of Putin bare-chested and riding a horse, which brought a few sidelong glances my way when I was reading it in the Houston airport during a layover. And indeed, the prevalence of media that reinforces a traditional masculine image of Russia's leader is at the core of Valerie's analysis of the power of gender norms and sexualization as a means of political legitimacy. She demonstrates how both Putin's supporters and the opposition use cultural idioms of masculinity, femininity, and homophobia grounded in widespread acceptance of gender stereotypes as tools of political organizing. I found this study immensely helpful to understand not only why we see so many images of Putin on a motorcycle or undersea diving, but what this tells us about the dynamics of Russian politics today. So welcome, Valerie. Thank you very much. As a more detailed introduction, I wonder if you would tell us a bit about yourself and how you became interested in studying Russia.
1: Well, I became interested in studying Russia when I was in college, when, of course, it was the Soviet Union uh, in the mid-1980s. And, you know, back then it was the Cold War and, uh, you know, the threat of nuclear destruction. And I wanted, or at least I I thought I wanted then, um, when I grew up to become an arms control negotiator, (laughs) because I figured, and I figured one of the problems maybe was that we didn't have enough people speaking Russian, you know, when we were trying to interact with the Soviets on issues like arms control. And so in college I took Russian and I spent a summer on CIEE in Leningrad in 1986. And that was just on the cusp of Perestroika and Glasnost, So those things hadn't happened yet. And I became really fascinated by domestic politics. You know, I kept on, I, I was getting a degree in political science and international relations um, for my undergraduate degree, but um But I started being more interested in in the domestic political angle. And then uh, also in college, I had taken one course. That was all it took in women's studies. (laughs) And so after I got out, I became interested in women in the Soviet Union. And that led to ultimately me getting a Ph.D. and writing my first book, which was on the women's movement in Russia in the mid 90s. Um, and so uh, that's how I got interested in, um, in Russia and what ultimately led to writing this book.
0: And what drew you to this topic in particular? Why write about Putin and his bare chest?
1: <laughs> I really didn't start with the bare chest, believe it or not. <laughs> um, so I had been I had written an article right around the year 2000, 2001 about patriotism and militarism in Russia. Um, And so that was kind of a side interest of mine. And then after 2005, when this pro-Kremlin youth group, Nashi, was created, I thought that was really interesting. And so I started following Nashi, and then there were some other related kinds of pro-Kremlin groups. And so I started looking at those on the web. And um, and I I decided I would write a book instead of, you know, about the women's movement from the mid-90s. I thought, oh, you know, I'll write a book about youth politics, like youth political organizing. Um, Let's see what that looks like. And so I looked at, I started following the pro-Kremlin groups and some of the anti-Kremlin, some of the anti-Kremlin groups as well. And I thought that was all, you know, very interesting. And so in 2011, I went to Russia to interview pro and anti-Kremlin youth activists and in the process of um, preparing for those interviews, I did come across the 2010 calendar that was made by some of the women who were students at Moscow State University's journalism department, and they had put out this kind of erotic calendar for Putin. So instead of like his bare chest, it was their practically bare chests. <laughs> and so, um, and so, I asked, you know, since I'm interested in gender, I asked the people who I was interviewing. What did they make of the calendar? And, you know, predictably, according to their politics, they either thought it was a good idea or it was clever or, you know, the women were attractive or it was a bad idea and the women were political prostitutes um, and, you know, and so on. But really, nobody said it's objectification. It's like sexual objectification. And so I thought to myself, huh, I should find out what young feminists are interested in and talking about uh, today. And so at the end of that summer trip in 2011, I got some contact information for Russian feminists in Moscow and St. Petersburg. And I followed up with that. And the following summer I went back and I interviewed them and asked them questions about, you know, sort of the prevalence of um, sexism and misogyny and the use of masculinity and homophobia in Russia today. So that's Mm -hmm. kind of, that's kind of how the book got generated.
0: Mm -hmm. And I have to admit that I was uh, not surprised, obviously, having seen Russian media coverage of Putin, of this sort of machismo image, Um, but this sexualized sexualized image of Putin, and especially this this erotic calendar, um, I I wasn't expecting when I came to that in your book. Can you tell us more about um, this? Uh, these kinds of images of Putin, this this hyper masculinity and this uh, sexualization of Putin and um, what kinds of stereotypes are these um, playing into uh, as they're portraying Putin as what you call a real man?
1: Um, I think they're playing into this. Well, I think they're playing into the stereotype as you say of sort of a real man, um, a tough guy um, a leader who's a strong leader, who can't be pushed around and won't be pushed around, who's going to protect Russia's national interests, um, and the hell with what anybody else is telling us to do, right, domestically or in terms of our foreign policy. Um, and I think the reason, you know, I think there are a number of ways to, to look at it. In, in the book, um, I, write about, um, I write about how when Putin came to power in the year two thousand. Russia was coming off the 1990s, which was a pretty bad decade um, for Russia. You know, the Soviet Union collapses. The ideology, to the extent that anybody believed in it anymore, um, had been defeated, you know, soundly defeated. Um, The country was going through enormous economic turmoil, throwing off the centrally planned economic system and trying to adopt a market system. But that had not really been done before. You know, it was it was it was being done in Eastern Europe also, you know, with enormous economic disruptions and poverty and impoverishment and unemployment, which was kind of a new thing in, in the Russian, um, in the Russian experience. So, so that was going on. Um, and I think all of those things kind of combined to suppress national pride. You know, there were surveys and so forth that were done about just the collapsing national pride, when people were asked, you know, towards the end of the 90s, and even the beginning of the 2000s, what do you you know, what are you proud of, you know, as a Russian, the most popular answer was don't know, you know, or they couldn't respond. So it was a really difficult time. Putin shows up. And I think, um, I think there was a desire in a way to hitch Russia's star to Putin's, you know, and that by nature, um, or by choice, he is uh, a sober, you know, athletic person. Um, and by comparison to Yeltsin, who had come before, you know, he didn't kind of have like that boozy, crazy way about him, you know, the sort of bumbling, you know, that's nothing like Putin. He was very controlled, and very restrained, and very, um, and when he came into office, he came in with this very tough persona. If you remember, in September of 1999, that's when the apartment bombings had happened in uh, in Russia. And Putin was very fierce about this. And he used some very um, vulgar language when talking about how they were gonna chase down the terrorists and find them wherever they are if they're in the airport we'll find them in the airport if they're you know in the outhouse we'll waste them in their outhouses um, and so I think the idea of Putin's masculinity and sort of like hyper masculinity and toughness uh, saying Russia is getting off its knees and we' and we're going to assert our sovereignty and our national interests um, I think, it was appealing as a way of reasserting Russia's masculinity, and there are two um, Russian uh, sociologists, political scientists, um, uh, Tatiana Ryabova and Oleg Ryabov, who write about this remasculinization idea. So I think, um, so I think they're, I think they're right about that, and um, and at the same time, you know, the sexualization, I, I think that comes in a way, as a reaction against uh, the Soviet ascetic image of the leader. Mm. I think that's part of it. But I think the other bigger component is the introduction of commercial capitalism. You know, in the 1990s, all of a sudden, you know, you have advertising, you know, you asked me, how did I get interested in, you know, in studying the Soviet Union? And The thing that struck me most, you know, from the moment that I got off the train in Leningrad about the Soviet Union in 1986, aside from the fact that there were no garbage cans anywhere because there was no packaging on any of the foods, (laughs) aside from that, a very striking thing was the absence of ads. There were no ads anywhere you looked. And that also was like the packaging. There's no packaging because there's no need to advertise, you know. The only advertising you would ever see were these giant billboards, you know, promising you know, to carry forward the goals of the most recent party Congress. And so it was like all the advertising was one company, you know, for the entire country. And that company was the communist party. But come the 1990s, you've got the introduction of commercial capitalism. And that comes along with advertising. And as we know, I think, um, Advertising comes along with the female body being shown in much less clothes than it usually walks around in. And so so that, I think, added to – I think that bled over from the economic realm into the political realm. Because as you introduce political competition, you're introducing – which they did have some of in the 1990s, even if it doesn't exist much um, at this point, at this stage of the game – in the 1990s, there was some political competition. And I think the idea of having to advertise your candidates, you know, having to go out in public um, and, uh, you know, and show who you are, um, that combined with the idea, you know, with the capitalist idea of competition, you know, brought uh, brought physicality more into the public realm. You know, it's the 1990s where you have all those glossy magazines you know, that we grow up with in the United States, you know, but for Russia in the mid 1990s, things like Cosmopolitan and things like GQ um, and Helena Gashila writes about this. They're like manuals for how to learn how to be, you know, a woman or how to be a man, like what you're supposed to look like, how you're supposed to dress, how you're supposed to behave. Um, And, you know, and that comes along, I think, at least for women with a certain sexualization, So I think that's where we, I think that's where some of uh, these images and patterns come from.
0: And you argue that this was a deliberate political strategy behind the media images of Putin, and that this strategy works because it draws on gender stereotypes ingrained in Russia's three most trusted institutions, the presidency, the Russian Orthodox Church, and the army. Can you explain the cultural idioms of masculinity and femininity that these strategies are appealing to? Um, sure.
1: I mean, I think I think all the evidence we have is that it, it was a deliberate political strategy. Um, I think Surikov and others decided to portray in, in that you know in that way to say here is a sober masculine tough uh, you know a sober masculine tough leader. Now the presidency in Russia is um a very empowered institution there's a lot of power invested um invested in the presidency you know it's not a um it's 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 what uh, Steve fish called the super presidential system and so having a powerful person embodied in that powerful um institution uh, i think the idea, at least following Yeltsin's reign, because Yeltsin really, in some ways, kind of like Brezhnev, kind of collapsed towards the end. You know, he became um, a much weaker political figure, and I think the idea was that with that weak political figure at the center, the West was taking advantage of Russia. You know, I think the I think the word on the street in the 1990s was that the United States had intentionally undermined you know Russia with an with an eye towards getting at its, you know, cheap uh, natural resources. And the, because Yeltsin wasn't strong enough, you know, or because he was too, you know, pro-Western, he allowed, this, um, he allowed this to happen. So having, you know, a strong man in the strong presidency, I think was, um, you know, was an appealing strategy. In terms of the Russian Orthodox Church, this also has to do with the collapse of communist ideology. You know, so Putin came to power. And in fact, even back under Yeltsin, there was a lot of discussion of what should russia's national idea be now, like it can't be communism anymore, and they were a little too late to the capitalism game to claim that you know as their as their ideology. so what should russia's national idea be and even and under Yeltsin, there was even a competition you know for the national idea and um and uh and both the Russian Orthodox Church and I think the army uh play into this. The um the Put under the Putin administration they began these things called patriotic education programs. And at the center of the patriotic education programs um was World War II and you know which obviously in which obviously the Army plays you know a central uh plays a central role and is a you know very trusted uh institution in Russia. And so um and so with World War II kind of being at the center of a new national idea for Russia, you know, a a time when Russia was really successful, you know, a time when the Soviet Union was really successful against a horrible evil, you know, against, uh, against the Nazis and with an unfathomable level of sacrifice um, and destruction. Uh, So, so that, um, so, so placing that sort of at the center of a political uh, ideology, I think was, um, I think that was important. And the Russian Orthodox Church uh, contributed to the ideology as well. So you uh, so as you know, during the Soviet period, the Russian Orthodox Church had been fairly suppressed. Um, once the Soviet Union fell apart, uh, under Yeltsin's rule, you started to see the reassertion of the Russian Orthodox Church taking back over parishes, reconsecrating churches You know that had been turned into I don't know warehouses and you know youth clubs and and things like that and the church um, the church became a pretty empowered player in, uh, in the Russian economy and increasingly in Russian politics uh, under Putin I think that the church supplied part of a necessary ideology I think um, you know the Russian nationalism, and um, the primacy of uh, you know of Russian um, the the primacy of the Russian Orthodox Church and of Russian nationalism those things historically have gone together in Russia and I think for Putin this social conservatism you know that he has it matches very well or it, it blends very well with the Russian Orthodox Church's social conservatism and I think that's where you get you know some of the um, gender roles and the essentialism and the homophobia. The the church is working much more closely with the Putin administration than it had been able to do for the entire 20th uh, century, really following the revolution.
0: You use a multiple opportunity structure model for your analysis. So as a historian, I'm not quite sure how that works. Uh, can you explain that um, for us? And also, what does that model reveal in this case? I and mean, what makes it particularly useful for getting at um, the kinds of things you want to uh, see mm-hmm. or that you're revealing? Mm-hmm.
1: So um, so multiple opportunity structure analysis is a way of trying to explain why we see what we do see. Um, so back in the 1990s, when I was researching my dissertation, my question was, uh, why does the women's movement in Russia look the way it does? You know, they're not doing a lot of demonstrations, you know, their organizing scene is very different. It's mostly behind closed doors. It's, it's still a movement, you know, they still have women's groups and they're still meeting and, um, and they're still interested in, you know, changing public consciousness and in um, elevating women's status and, and, and that sort of, and that sort of thing, you know, and establishing gender equality, but it looks different. And so, um, and so, in order to analyze that social movement as well as this one, I was looking to see in a lot of different realms why does the movement look the way that it does? And so, I looked at um, politics. What's the political opportunity structure? You know, to what extent, and this is t- speaking of the current book, in other words, what enables this kind of degree of um, uh, sexualization or. Um, uh, making masculinity so emblematic in the new regime as a, um, as a legitimation tool, you know, what enables that? So, so one, um, so the first aspect is the political opportunity structure. So what is it about the way that the state is organized that would make that possible? So we talked about that a little bit. There's a sort of emphasis on the presidency and on the leader. So a leader has to have a certain personality uh, or at least um, that personality or, or even that appearance is going to be, you know, a big um, public issue. Another matter in political opportunity structure is where are where are your allies um, and are they present? And so one of the conclusions that I reach um, in the book is that there's a lot more room for sexism in politics and for the use of gender norms and gender stereotypes in politics if there's not a really strong feminist movement to protest it. You know, so, for instance, um, in uh, in the United States, when we had people running for Congress who were talking about things like legitimate rape, like if a woman is legitimately raped, she won't get pregnant um, or, you know, things like that. They can say those things, right? There's nothing to stop them from saying those things, but there are enough You know, there's enough feminist organizing for people to get up and say, like, that's actually not acceptable. That's not an okay thing to say. And, you know, and and, uh, Aiken and Murdoch, who were saying those kinds of things when they were running for Congress, they lost their races. So in the Russian case, um, largely, but not entirely, because, um, you know, because of political repression, the women's movement there hasn't really been able to take off. One of the things I write about in the book is the fact that there was this movement in the 1990s. Um, It relied in some ways on foreign funding, which tended to dry up around 9-11 when funding was uh, redirected to uh, other things. And then by the time the Putin era really gets underway, the degree of political freedom is really reduced. So the opportunity for young women who were organizing, you know, in the Putin era and who were interested in feminism, they didn't have a lot of opportunities to, uh, you know, to engage in mobilization and uh, and protest. So that's part of the political opportunity structure, too. Um, then you have your economic opportunity structure. Um, and I think I talked about that a little already, you know, the, the transfer to, you know, from uh, communism to capitalism brings along this kind of commercialization, and so you get, um, you know, the uh, the commercialization and the use of women's bodies in public, uh, both economically and politically. Some something um, something that ties those two together uh, was in the 1990s. Vladimir Zhirinovsky, who is kind of the uh, both, he was sort of this. Uh, he, he's still engaged in Russian politics, I suppose, at a you know at a much lower um level but you know he ran this liberal democratic party of russia which was neither liberal nor democratic and more kind of national fascist um he also helped to bring out sexuality and politics by using these really sexualized metaphors about politics in the 19 um politics in the 1990s you know he had said when when his party was first running for office in 1993 that um on election day, everybody was going to turn their backs, you know, on the existing parties and run after the virgin LDPR, you know, and things like that. So that's part of the the opportunity structure as well. Um, I also looked a bit at the historical um, opportunity structure and how power was mobilized by previous Soviet leaders. Um, and I looked at the international opportunity structure, you know, sort of to say, what's Russia's place in the international system. And that also goes back to what I was speaking about before is the kind of um, decline in overall Russian power, uh, and the appearance of Putin and the readiness of the population for a leader who could mobilize um, his own strength and masculinity and, um, and bring Russia back to the world's Age, um from which it had, uh, you know, from which it had been eclipsed uh, for such a long um, and disempowering time in the 90s. Hmm. Um,
0: what I found interesting is that you show how both the pro-Putin and the opposition political organizing was using these uh, stereotypes of masculinity and femininity, femininity or heteronormativity and homophobia um, to try to, legitimize their own um, political stances and de-legitimize um, the opposition, in Putin's case, the opposition, and in the opposition's case, Putin. And you focus on this dynamic and pol- political or- organizing among youth. So how were gender stereotypes used differently or in the same ways by the two sides? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I mean, of course,
1: the anti Kremlin groups are much more liberal, you know, and when I asked them uh, about gender discrimination in Russia uh, you know, a number of the, a number of the activists, um, you know, in which they thought um, that gender discrimination was really problematic um, in, you know, in that country. And yet some of them didn't, right. Some of them didn't think it was much of an issue, you know, maybe that's more of an issue out in the provinces, or maybe that's more of an issue in the Arab world, you know, here in Russia we're kind of okay. And, and I found that actually was similar on the pro-Kremlin side, on the pro-Putin side, you know, especially, you know, not really, not really the men, um, but a couple of the women who I interviewed spoke at length, and I do quote them in the book, about how they experienced, you know, gender-based discrimination because they were women active in politics and they found that people were you know, all too happy to reduce them to the status of sex objects, uh, you know, and not to take them seriously as political activists, even though they were pretty or perhaps because they were pretty um, and things like, uh, you know, and things like that. But in terms of the way, so in other words, there was some familiarity with the notion of gender discrimination on, on both sides. But yet what I found was both sides were also using um, as you said sort of stereotypes and homophobia to try to um, either build up their own political authority or undermine the authority of the other side so if we take the issue of, of military conscription of the draft um, for the pro-kremlin groups who were uh, in favor of Russia's current system of military conscription you know their argument to the public you know when trying to convince people to, you know, not evade the draft when trying to convince young men not to evade the draft, because that's an enormous issue in Russia is draft evasion. Uh, They said the army will make you a man. The proper thing to do if you're a man is to serve in the army. Anybody who can serve should serve. And then there were even some, um, you know, there was one example of a rally in, I think it was 2007 that Nashi held where a woman, you know, from the stage, Said, um, I won't marry you until you've completed your military service because you know unless you're going to show that you can you know protect the country and defend the country, I'm not going to be able to take you seriously. Um, on the other side, you have the same kind of language um, going on, saying that it's not uh, that it's not that this this kind of army won't make you a man, right? But an army that's a professional army. Which is what the um, the anti Kremlin side was pushing for to say you should have a contract army. People should be able to choose, right? The sort of fundamental liberal idea of I choose what I want to do. I don't want the state necessarily um, coming first. You know, I think that I individually should should be able to make my own decisions, and that would be better for the you know that would be better for the country. Uh, there was a protest that I described. Um, in the book that was uh, run by a group calling themselves uh, Young Women Against the Draft or Girls Against the Draft. And one of their slogans was, um, that kind of army won't make you a man. You know, so there's still, in other words, playing on that same notion. And in fact, the uh, uh, youth Yabloka, so the, um, the youth branch of the Yabloka party, uh, had organized a, an, an anti-draft action. In the middle of um, in the middle of Moscow in one of the public squares and what they did was they brought in you know um, military stuff so they brought in weapons that you could uh, that you could shoot you know you could do target shooting and Test your shooting, and you could do these different strength contests and measure your strength. And you know you could try out military rations and see how you like them. And then you could try cleaning the square with a toothbrush and marching around pointlessly. And their idea was um, was to show that a professional army would be so much better, right, than a draft or a conscripted uh, or a conscripted army, but yet they were drawing on the same idea of come and prove your manhood. um, but just, you know, we're just opposed to the policy the way that the state uh, is doing it. So that's an example.
0: Mm -hmm. And I, that was actually something I found really interesting was this use not of masculinity and femininity, not just in regards to people and, and political figures, but also these government policies and the, the masculinity different, um, constructions of masculinity either for or against military description was one, but you also talked about the pronatalist uh, government politi- policies and how that played into um, uh, stereotypes of uh, femininity and, and each side kind of using, again, those stereotypes. Can you talk some more about that?
1: Yeah, good. So um, so on that, there is that was really much more the issue of uh, the pro- the Kremlin uh, groups, because one of the one of the policies that the Putin administration has put out, and actually has put some money behind, was uh, this maternity capital idea—the idea of trying to increase um, the birth rate in Russia. This is really a labor force issue and army service issue. Uh, you need enough young people to serve in the labor force to serve in the army, and they need to be healthy enough, and all this kind of. Um, all this kind of thing, and so, the un, under Putin, they established a maternity capital program where after you have a certain number of children, you get you know some financial bonuses that can be spent in particular uh, in particular ways. So, along with this, um, the uh, the pro Kremlin youth groups adopted um, a pro, sort of a pronatalist program of encouraging their members to marry and have kids, and you know there are some. You know, there were some uh, ways that they did this at the Seliger summer camps. And so every summer uh, for, um, for, a long, uh, for a long time, the Kremlin would sponsor a, uh, a pro-Kremlin youth camp. It was basically a Nashi-sponsored youth camp that was funded through the state. And, you know, their activists in Nashi would gather and, you know, uh, learn about politics and learn about entrepreneurship And things like that. And they would also be encouraged um, if there was somebody that they, you know, were in relationship with to get married. Um, And so they would organize these, you know, I don't want to say mass weddings because it wasn't like the Reverend Moon kind of mass weddings, you know, but they would organize weddings for, you know, a number of people, a dozen people say at the camp and then encourage them to go forth and um, and reproduce. And so there was this pronatalist, um, this sort of pronatalist idea um, on the other side of it, of course, is, um, the notion of reproductive rights and reproductive choice. And that's something that was more taken up by feminists. Um, you know, whether there was really a platform on reproductive choice, you know, for any of the anti Kremlin youth groups, you know, I didn't really see any evidence of that. It's really much more of a, you know, a feminist issue in Russia. And so there, there was a lot of, um, Feminist organizing, especially starting in 2011, when the regime started to um, restrict the conditions under which you could get, um, or the circumstances under which you could get an abortion, so they started restricting reproductive rights, and there was even, you know, discussion of restricting access to contraception, and so that produced some feminist activity on uh, on the issue of reproductive choice, and some of the first um, protests, like actual public protests in the streets uh, by women in the Putin era were about reproductive choice and, uh, and maintaining the right to, uh, to abortion and to control over, uh, over one's body, you know, not just sort of reproducing because the state tells you to. Um, And so, um, so one of the, uh, one of the left wing organizations that also had uh, a sort of um, a feminist um, uh, program affiliated with it wrote about how the state wants women to uh, to reproduce, but what what we want um, is child care, you know, accessible child care and reasonable maternity benefits that, you know, you could buy more than a box of Pampers with for the month. And so, you know, so the groups are kind of on the opposite side, uh, you know, of that
0: issue. Mm-hmm. And uh, just to pick up on something that you talked about a, a few minutes ago, in terms of the just the entrenchment of these gender norms among young people, because I, I think that one of the contributions of your work comes from your interviews with these young activists, um, whether they're the pro-Putin or the opposition political organization. So, it, what do you think that this tells us about um, Russian politics and society today? Just the level of entrenchment of these gender norms um, in in the minds of young people yeah i mean i think
1: because russia is not a democracy and because information doesn't flow you know freely i think it's i think it's troubling you know because it's less likely to change fast um you know in terms of the you know uh gender normative beliefs same thing with like heteronormative beliefs in fact probably even more so
0: um
1: you know with uh, you know with the um Homophobic legislation and you know that sort of thing—it just really entrenches um, homophobic ideas in society, including um, including among youth. I, I think um, you know, getting getting around that or getting through that is going to be the job of um, of feminists, right? It's kind of the feminist movement's uh, task to reveal um, gender stereotypes and homophobic ideas. And, you know, it's also the LGBT movement's, uh, you know, task to to do that. I think that, you know, because there's not a lot of, because there's been such a crackdown on freedom of speech and freedom of assembly in Russia, it's hard to enact that change. That said, um there are still efforts made, you know, in the book, I talk about a variety of feminist protests, and they continue to happen, you know, especially around International Women's Day, you know, you'll see protests in um, in the big cities, at least, and, you know, women protesting against the glass ceiling, you know, the, the inability to get equal pay uh, in the workplace, or to have women represented in more, you know, higher, more of the higher paying jobs, you know, there's still in Russia, this List that was inherited from the Soviet Union of over four hundred and fifty jobs that women aren't allowed to do you know women are not allowed to be hired as uh subway train drivers because there's this prohibition on women you know working underground, although as you notice if you go into the Moscow subway there's no prohibition on women pushing a mop in the subway they 're just not allowed to get in the train and drive it so. Um, so those kinds of, uh, gender norms that are embodied in legislation and sort of homophobic norms that get embodied in legislation, those are hard to shift. Um, but in addition to the public protests and, you know, there are efforts every year to hold gay pride, um, marches or events, you know, and they're always at this point, um, outlawed, they're always banned, they're always forbidden, um, those kinds of efforts, in addition to those kind of public sphere efforts, there's also now the internet, thank goodness. <laughs> and, and people can find, if they look, and that's kind of the key is they actually have to look, uh, because we all use the internet in a very, in a way that's structured like columns, you know, we, you know, we're, we're in columns next to each other. But I tend not to look at, you know, Fox News, right, I tend to look at the news that you know that is likely to be more along the lines of um, my interest. and the same thing is true in Russia, of course. But that said, um, getting feminist information out there on the internet uh, has been a pretty amazing tool, and and in the book I tell the story of the uh, of this particular blogging site, uh, Feministki. So it's a feminist list um, in Russian and how it was started. And it was started because a young woman, um, you know, a young feminist in Russia in 2005 or so, thought to herself, what might happen if I tried to build a feminist community by putting some essays, you know, some uh, well-known feminist essays translated into Russian up on the web, you know, on um, one of the social media sites, which is what she did. and. She said, I wasn't delusional. She said, I didn't think that there were mobs of feminists in Russia who would come you know, to the website, but I thought maybe they could be created. Um, I don't think she was as grandiose as to say mobs, but she thought, why don't I just put this out there and see what happened? And within a few years, feministki So she, what she put up there as the first essay was Gloria Steinem's, uh, famous essay, what if men menstruated, <laughs> you know, just to see what people would say. And, um, And over maybe about three years or so, I think I have the number right, it was something like 1,500 people had become members of this uh, list and were regularly contributing and talking about everything from how do you deal with it, you know, when someone you uh, encounter, you know, uses the phrase um, in, in, I'll give it to you in English, although it's offensive in both languages. Dumb cunt, right? And it, this gets abbreviated on the internet as TP um, for the uh, for the Russian phrase for this. She's like, how do you respond to that? And then people would give suggestions, or how do you respond? You know, when um, when your family says homophobic things to you, and people would respond, and they would post stuff about. Um, you know, the violation of women's rights in other countries. And so it became, you know, and now, or at least as of a couple of years ago, I think there were 3,000 members of this list, you know, actively um, contributing. And it even has an organizing element to it. And so there's a uh, there's um, an example that I talk about towards the end of the book where uh, and I and I saw this in, in Russia myself, you know, in around uh, 2012 2013. There was a new cable TV channel called TVU with with the Russian letter U, and um, and the advertisement for it showed. Don't really know how to describe it other than to say it's like a little cat, um, you know, with little ears. But there's a human hair wig on top of the cat's head, and the cat is obviously supposed to be a girl. You know, she is wearing a little pinafore. She's got a little, you know, a little, uh, tie. And, and what she's saying is I'm a girl. I'm not interested in politics. I want a TV channel. That's just for me. <laughs> and so somebody posted a picture of this on feminist key and said, what the heck, you know, what do we do about this? This is awful. And somebody else said, okay, I've made a sticker, um, that says, you know, I'm a girl. I can choose what I want to watch, or I'm a girl. I'm interested in politics. Um, And so they posted this template for a sticker and the people could print it out and slap this sticker on the actual ads for the TV channel, which were found in the subways and on the sides of buses and on bus shelters and things like that. So it actually became um, an organizing tool. In addition to, you know, March 8th is coming up and we're going to have a a demonstration and who wants to come. In addition to that, there are also these ways of trying to do little actions that could over time help to undo or or unentrench some of those uh gender norms.
0: Mm-hmm. And I that also was uh, I think one of the major contributions of your book is the interviews that you conducted with um young feminist activists and and so I'm glad that you gave uh, that example because I think you know, most of our listeners are going to know who Pussy Riot is um but you really looked at um some of the other uh, sort of, I would say quote-unquote, major um, groups like FEMIN, but also a lot of these um, real uh, small groups that maybe no one has heard of unless they're really engaged in this topic. Um, so in thinking about kind of the landscape of uh, f- uh, feminist activism in Russia, like where is that at today? And and how are they, um, uh, in addition to the example you just gave, engaging in these um, uh Issues of gender stereotypes and homophobia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good. So, so the feminist movement in Russia
1: is small. Um, you know, it's not a burgeoning, gigantic uh, kind of movement. And again, that's you know, it's it's nobody's fault. You know, in, in part, it's just the authoritarian context. You know, that that drives this. I mean, we saw what happened to Pussy Riot when they did try to, you know, sing forty seconds of an anti Putin song, you know, in the in the church. Uh so we know that it's a fairly repressive um political atmosphere. But yeah, so so the feminist, so this wave of feminist organizing starts in it 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 really picks up around the year two thousand ten. Um, but it starts kind of with uh, with the creation of feminist Queue because over time some of the women who worked as moderators for that um, for that listserv started getting together as a consciousness raising group uh, called the Moscow feminist group and um you know, and so it was a, the way that feminism always works, right? It starts out as consciousness raising. You talk about issues that you've encountered as a woman and it turns out other people have encountered them too. And so maybe it wasn't your fault, you know, maybe this is a systemic structural, you know, problem of discrimination. And so they had their consciousness raising group. And then in 2010, something happened that uh, really provoked uh, feminists to get together and go out into the streets and protest. And what this was, was a rape case where, uh, a young male artist had raped a young woman in his apartment. There was another man um, in the apartment at the time who, uh, who reported this. And, um, and what happened was the, the guy, the, the guy who had, um, who had committed the rape was uh, he was arrested. He was jailed. And then he was awarded a prize uh, for moral support um, from a gallery in Moscow. And this was pretty uh, enraging uh, to a number of feminists and, you know, in small different groups uh, in, uh, in Moscow. And so they got together and they did a public protest um, to basically say, you know, they, they gave the um, they gave the gallery that had given him the prize. They gave him a they, they gave the gallery an award for immoral um, support. And they actually went and, and they protested in public and they said, look, it's not OK to commit rape. You know that's not something that can can be condoned or rewarded, um, in any way. So uh, so these women you know got together and formed a number of different you know small groups. There's there's one um, called the uh, Initiative Group Pro Feminism Zafeminism. And one of the one of their favorite events that they do every year is um, the Sexist of the Year award. And so they have these Sexist of the Year awards where they take quotes from you know political and economic actors in Russia that were you know famous quotes that came out in you know in the public sphere, um, or sometimes actions that were taken in the public sphere by politicians, and they award whoever sort of did the most sexist. Thing and deserves to get the uh, the sex of the year award. And so things like, you know, things like that and holding, you know, occasional protests as possible. Um, you know, there have been protests in, um, you know, in, in Leningrad, for example, on reproductive choice. Um, you know, one of them, uh, in, in one of them that I, uh, that I, have a link to a picture of in the book is there's the woman who's um, basically bared her uh, her midriff and on it is written "My Body, My Choice" uh, in Russian, and then there were other protests uh, objecting to the use of women's bodies in advertising, so sort of objecting to sexual um, objectification in advertising. So all that stuff is out there, and and while at the time, like while at the moment. Um, or protest against domestic violence, you know, for that matter. Well, in the moment, there may not be a lot of foot traffic um, or people who join in. Uh, it all goes up on the web afterwards. And so people can encounter it and find it. And so I think, um, I think I'm think i fairly, you know, optimistic about the potential for you know, feminist activism in Russia, even though it's limited and fairly small for it to keep, you know, for it to keep growing. Cause it's not, you know, it's not underground. It's out there. It's known. It's just a matter. I think of people uh, finding it and certainly what Pussy Riot did drew a lot of attention to the concept of feminism, you know, cause Pussy Riot said overtly that they were feminists and that maybe drew more people's attention, you know, whether negative or positive, Uh, to that
0: notion. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the things that's come up uh, a number of times as we've been talking is this heteronormativity and homophobia in Russia today. And uh, you look particularly at the rhetoric of homophobia in the 2011 and 2012 protests. Why was this used so prevalently in those particular protests?
1: Um, I think because I think the rhetoric of homophobia, you know, comes up because, um, well, you know, we could ask we could ask the same question about the United States, right? About (laughs) homophobia and masculinity. Um, uh, I think it comes up because it's a lowest common denominator kind of thing. You know, when we think about masculinity and how masculinity is used as in the service of political legitimation, homophobia is used. To undermine people who want to come across as masculine, right? And so, you know, one of the easy ways to, you know, try to undermine Putin, right, is to say, oh, he's not macho; he's a fag. And so, you know, you could certainly see posters, or there was even a song that went around the internet, you know, a, um, a, an anti-Putin song called "Putin is a fag." Um, and um, and so, I think that, I think that that, in a way, comes up because it's a way of, of attacking. Masculinity, you know, so we see that in the United States too, with Donald Trump referring to Jeb Bush, you know, back when when he was still in the race, as you know, low energy, you know, insufficiently masculine, or you know, little Marco, or even Marco Rubio making his effort to, to be Donald Trump when he said that Donald Trump, you know, had small hands and so therefore must have you know uh, must be somehow insufficient in the in you know in the genitalia way, and so all that stuff is sort of anti. Uh, that sort of those sort of efforts to undermine people's masculinity, it's very closely related to homophobia, which is itself very closely related to misogyny. In other words, you know, what homophobia is rooted in is the idea that somebody is not manly. You know, they're more like a woman than they are like a man. And so I think that's, um, I think that's why it comes out in political protest, because it's kind of an, it's something that everybody understands. Um, And also the idea of, Uh, domination is something that everybody understands and you don't want to be on the receiving end of that, right? You want to be on the dominating end of it. And so some of the imagery that was used by the opposition in the protests after the election was stolen in December, 2011 was, uh, um, the United Russia symbol of the bear being mounted by a poodle, you know, to sort of say, uh, you know, we're going to, um, I think the poster actually said, you know, you know, first we'll bark and then we'll bite, you know, and then dot, dot, dot. And the idea, you know, really it's using homophobia, right? It's sort of using this idea of, um, you know, of uh, anal penetration and domination to kind of undermine the authority of the party um, in charge. So I think, that's, I think that's where it comes from. Mm mm-hmm.
0: In your conclusion, you argue that the infusion of sexism and what you call the metaphorical sexualization of the electoral process hinders the process of do- democratization. So can you explain what that sexualization of the electoral process, what you mean by that? And also, what are some of the consequences you see in Russian politics today and moving forward? Yeah, good. So, um so that particular
1: thing—the metaphorical sexualization of the electoral process—this is about a series of ads that were put out by United Russia in in advance of the 2011 uh, December elections to the to the parliament, to the Russian parliament. They put out these these ads that um, that well, there were two there were two types. Um, one was this woman uh, goes into a voting booth. And then a man goes in after her. They're both pretty young, you know. And they kind of come out looking tousled, <laughs> and and the tagline was uh, "Let's do it together." So like "Let's go vote. Let's do it together." Cute, right? So, so there's this sort of you know idea that that's what you know that's what voting is about. The the one so that could in a way be sort of a neutral ad, except that I think that there was a United Russia you know logo somewhere present on that. The ads that were. Um, Pro-Putin and also sexualizing, there were three of them, and they each featured, you know, a very attractive young woman going, in one case, to a doctor, in one case, to a psychiatrist, and in one case, to a psychic, and each time, you know, she goes in and she says, oh, I'm really scared, you know, I'm about to do it for the first time, I've never done it before, I'm not sure if I'm going about it the right way. And in each case, the professional, the, you know, the doctor, the psychiatrist and the uh, and the psychic says, oh, no, no, the man you've chosen is the right man. You will be safe with him. You will be like behind a brick wall. You've chosen the right man. Go ahead and do it. And then you see the woman, you know, going out and, uh, you know, and voting for uh, for Putin. You know, and, and so in in one case, so how do you know it's going to be Putin that she votes for? Well, like in, in the office when she's with the doctor, you know, the, the camera falls on a picture of, you know, Putin on the cover of Time magazine or whatever. So that's the sort of sexualization is sort of making a sexual metaphor out of uh, out of the electoral uh, process. So um, so that was that and in terms of the consequences of um know, of the, the use of gender norms in politics and the sort of stressing of, um, you know, masculinity as something that's a necessary characteristic for, the per, for politicians, um, you know, like with, uh, as, as we've seen with Putin, you know, sort of the hyper-masculinity and toughness and manliness, you know, to the extent that those qualities are understood as being inherent to politics and inherent to political leadership, it kind of leaves women out of the equation right so that's not very good for democracy and um and i think also to the extent that um you know that that these metaphors are being used and you know and so forth it uh, it restricts the way um that we think about it restricts the, the ways that we think about politicians and the values, you know, that they should have. You know, that maybe there should be um, a different way, you know, of looking at politics. That it should be a more open, um, that it should be a more open process, more about maybe compromise and less about insistence on doing things, you know, in one, uh, you know, in one particular way or in being the toughest and beating everybody else.
0: Well, I really enjoyed reading your book and I've enjoyed our discussion uh, that we've just had about it. And while there is a lot more that we could talk about, and I often show people the copy of the book that I have with all of the flags of questions I wish I could have asked, um, I think uh, we've taken a lot of your time uh, this morning. And so to close, I'd like to ask you um, what you're working on now.
1: Okay. So right now I'm working on uh, two things. One is a, uh, a book project that I'm doing with Lisa McIntosh Sunstrom at the University of British Columbia, where we are looking at gender discrimination cases in the Russian and Turkish courts and at the European Court for Human Rights um, to see, you know, how are those cases, if they're not being addressed uh, in the Russian courts, how are they being addressed abroad instead um, we have a little spinoff project from that, actually, that we'll be presenting at um, ACES in, uh, in November, and that is looking at LGBT discrimination cases in the Russian courts and at the ECHR. Uh, so we'll be uh, working on that. And then the other project that I have going is a collaborative project with my colleague in the department here at Clark. Uh, his name is Rob Boatwright, and what he studied, he's an Americanist, Uh, And he studies elections and primaries in the United States. And so we're kind of taking our research and smashing it together and doing a project on masculinity and misogyny in the current U.S. um, elections. And so we're looking both at the presidential level and at the Senate level to see how are gender norms being um, used in political advertising um, and in rhetoric and in the kinds of things that candidates say about themselves and about each other
0: those sound both like great projects and uh, I'm sure that a lot of our listeners as well as uh, myself, I look forward to seeing them in the future and hopefully at least one of those book projects will be an opportunity for us to talk to you again on the new books network. So thank you again for your time.
1: Very welcome.
0: And um, also we want to thank our listeners for joining us today. And um, as always, uh, We appreciate your attention um, to the new books in Russian studies, and we look forward to a new interview next month.